Today, let's talk about the upcoming Bitcoin halving, whether the hype is justified or we're all getting worked up for no reason. We'll also talk about whether exchanges actually have a responsibility to educate traders. Have some been negligent? Has a recent effort from FTX? Does it actually make sense? So we'll talk about all that and more in today's episode. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Crypto Bobby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton. What's going on, man? What's going on, Rob? How are you, man? Good. Just, you know, sitting indoors, doing my thing per usual. So always, uh, always a good time. <laughs> yeah. Same as the last, uh, what, 30, 35 days now? Yeah. Yeah. We're <laughs> stuck in New York, stuck in San Francisco, just, just getting by. So yeah. today let's, let's talk a little bit about the Bitcoin having, cause we got less than a month now, which is, uh, first of all, I mean, it feels like time's flied just from, I feel like, you know, the Bitcoin having always looks so far away and it is now almost, uh, you know, it's, it's here basically. And the hype is starting to, I mean, there's always been, been hype. It's always been something that people have, have pointed to. Um, but now we're really starting to see the conversation pick up. You're starting to see the, the screenshots of Google trends and the Google trends are going up and this is going to make the price go up and this is going to do this and this is going to do that. So today we're going to talk a bunch, I think, about just the Bitcoin having in general and and whether the hype is justified or this is going to be a really disappointing thing. And then we'll also talk about uh, something that FTX has done recently with a quiz, essentially, to make sure you're qualified to trade on certain assets and why it might actually be a good idea. And we'll finish up uh, after Pump It Dump It with uh, some questions from folks in regards to careers in the crypto world you don't know by any chance. Uh, Colton and I, we are proof of talent and we run a recruiting firm uh, that works with blockchain and crypto companies. So a few people reached out, asked us about questions in regards to careers in the crypto industry. So if you're interested in that, make sure you stay tuned for that. But first things first, I think, you know, want to talk about the elephant in the room or the, uh, the hottest thing in the room right now, maybe it's not the elephant in the room, but but stock to flow. Like Bitcoin, the halving is coming up and mm -hmm. S2F, if I see it one more time on Twitter, um, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I saw it on Twitter, I'd probably you know, have a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah, and I, I think you know what might be helpful too is just kind of uh, explaining what the halving is really quick. You know, that the halving, it comes every, every four years, like I think it's 210,000 blocks uh, which comes out to about four years. And, and that's part of the monetary policy that, that Satoshi embedded into uh, the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it and essentially when miners receive that uh, reward, it gets cut in half every four years. So it's, it's a big event. In 2009, I think the rule was 50 uh, Bitcoin uh, per reward and then 25. You know, back then. I, I know, right? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, wouldn't that be nice if 50, 50 Bitcoin? <laughs> um, but then, then 25, now 12 and a half, and soon to be 6.25. So that supply is set in stone. That schedule is set in stone. So a very unique part of Bitcoin's monetary policy. And then, like you said, this stock-to-flow model that popped up kind of out of nowhere. Uh, I think it was a, probably, what, a couple of years ago now. Um, by early uh, 2019, I think it was. Okay, early 2019. Yeah, and that stock-to-flow model... Again, it's a ton of hype. I mean, it's super bullish saying that, you know, Bitcoin is going to hit 50K, 55 to 100K in the next two years 
at least. Um, so that's pretty bullish. Uh, no wonder everyone loves it. Yeah, and and so I think what's what's interesting is there's there's a whole debate that rages right now too because look, you know, most people that that buy Bitcoin at this point in time or hold Bitcoin, you might have some ideological reasons for doing so. You, you know, disagree with the you know Fed monetary policy right now, especially right now. You disagree with a lot of things governments are doing. You disagree with central banks, etc. Um, but a good amount, I would say the majority of people uh, might not even buy it for ideological reasons at this point in time. They're buying it because they think the number's going to go up. Um, and when you look at number going up, things that people really get attracted to are, are kind of theories as to why that number might go up in general. And, and stock to flow is, is one of those models that allows individuals to, uh, to kind of point to and, and say, hey, you know, this is something that has has predicted essentially the price uh, or or uh you know kind of has demonstrated the rise of bitcoin in the past and we believe that it will you know result in that in the future as well and and for those you know who aren't i guess super super familiar with it just you know in general on the on the stock to flow model um you essentially have stock which is the you know outstanding supplier the existing supply of bitcoin and flow is the you know new bitcoin that's mined on a continuing basis and the bitcoin having is something that is going to reduce the flow of of Bitcoin that gets mined substantially. So mm-hmm. it is when you think about it. I think for me, the reduction in flow is obviously a bullish thing. But I I just don't know if you can really point to at least stock to flow in particular and say, okay, you know, this has been correct in the past. It is absolutely going to be correct in the future, and we're going to see this massively bullish, huge price swing. Right. It it's pretty much, um, you know predicting will will scarcity drive the value for bitcoin's price essentially so that's what it's trying to do i mean we've got 11 years now of data which is you know in the grand scheme of things not a ton of data um and and so i don't know i go back and forth because you know it's it's a model that hasn't been broken yet um the fact that it's so bullish it, it makes me skeptical um but at the same time you know i think the folks that had no it hasn't been disproven the model like it hasn't been disproven yet uh or we would have seen that all over twitter uh, there's lots of opinions and i think that i'm just excited to see how it how it um pans out here as this having approaches in the next month yeah totally and i think i mean for me i don't want to necessarily say it's a problem but i do have there's a lot of charts that also point back to you know 2009 2010 type time frames and even like going into 2014 like those to me have like i have a little bit of difficulty with those just because i think the market uh was so different back then uh when you look at the infrastructure and you think about the types of 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 vehicles people had to invest in bitcoin um and the types of ways that you could potentially purchase mine it um you know the different financial instruments around it be it uh you know something as you know, something as kind of not necessarily simple, but something like BitMEX's, you know, kind of BT, XBT perp swap, uh, you know, the different options that you might have on Deribit, the different ways miners can hedge now. Earlier on, like in the very early stages, it was just basically buying Bitcoin or being able to mine Bitcoin um, and not really having the effect of some of those other financial instruments. So mm-hmm. it'll, it'll, I, I don't know. I just I, I have somewhat of a tough time looking at at the very very early stages of Bitcoin and the price performance, starting at basically yeah. nothing and the rise up and and kind of continuing on 
in that type of, of pattern. But I do think that there, you know, there is merit to, to it at, to stock to flow as a metric. And I do think that ultimately the having is something that is a, it's a, it's a positive for, for Bitcoin's price. Um, I think yeah. it would be, you know, I think it'd be relatively insane to say you're going to cut the flow in half of, of new, uh, basically new Bitcoin mine. And that wouldn't have some type of bullish impact. However, when you think about what also drives Bitcoin, um, you know, drives Bitcoin's price movements, things like that, you also have to look at you know, venues like BitMEX and venues like Binance or Coinbase, et cetera, places, uh, you know, the Coinbase is the Bitstamps, the, the places that basically BitMEX uses in their, you know, in their index. Those are a lot of the places that lead price discovery and, and obviously the miners and, and miners selling new Bitcoin, that makes a difference. Um, but is that the only thing that makes a difference? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, one more thing I want to touch on the stock to flow. Is it um, people relate it to gold stock to flow as well? Yeah. The stock to flow of gold, which is, um, uh, you know, just to, to, to break it down a little bit, get in the weeds for a second, you know, the stock to flow, it's calculated. You take it, you divide the total stock, the yearly production to flow by um, basically the production rate. So for example, like gold has the production rate of like 3000 metric tons. Um, and mm -hmm. the current stock of gold is around like, uh, almost 200,000 or 185,000 metric tons. So if you divide 185,000 by 3000, you get 62. So that's the number that is attached to gold's stock flow. Bitcoins right now is 27. So, you know, it's not after the halving, it'll be 52. And the higher the number, the more scarce the, the asset is, which is why I think people, you know, Bitcoin's the digital gold, it's gold 2.0. So any way that you can find to relate it to gold, stock yeah. to flow adds to that and, and it kind of drives that scarcity um, narrative home. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when, it, when, I, when I look at everything just in general and the halving, I think kind of going back to it, like for me at least, I do think that the having is bullish. I, I just don't necessarily think that it's going to have the huge, huge upward trajectory that a lot of other people are looking for right now, just taking everything into consideration, the macro environment, what's happening around the world, just the investment landscape. Like I don't necessarily see a ton of, of capital all of a sudden flowing into to Bitcoin, but I mean, that could be wrong. I, I do think it is bullish. I do think you know, in the long, in the mid to long term. And the price is going to go up. I just don't necessarily think like, okay, boom, having happens, whatever it is, May 4th, 5th, um, you know, May, May 30th, you're going to see you know, $50,000 Bitcoin or something like that. I think it'll be a slow, yeah. gradual burn. Um, but for, I mean, the people that have been here for a long time since 2017, 2018, you've already been here for two years. What's another few months for you? <laughs> yeah. Might as well wait. This is, this is my first official having. So I'm stoked. You know, like I'm stoked <laughs> to see what happens. You know, it'll be interesting to see like how it, how the difficulty adjusts after the having, you know, miners have to turn off their rigs because they're, they're, they're not able to, um, you know, cover their operating costs and the more efficient miners get to, um, they get all those block rewards while, you know, a lot of the network is, has shut off their rig. So it's really interesting to see that first difficulty adjustment. I think in those first couple of months after the having, that's mm -hmm. when you're going to see, um, the, the impact of this having really take shape for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and kind of beyond the having too. So I think exchanges are, are definitely a hot topic and we've, I, I brought up, you know, BitMEX and some of these other exchanges. Um, and the, 
I don't want to say negligence around exchanges, but for a lot of these, these cryptocurrency exchanges, they're starting to offer more advanced investment products. And if, you know, anybody wasn't paying attention, so, so Binance is obviously like the, basically the largest crypto exchange. Um, they listed these bull and bear tokens that are from FTX, which if you're not familiar with FTX, it was founded by Alameda Research, um, who is like constantly, it's a, it's basically a quant, quant crypto fund, always in the top 20 uh, on the BitMEX leaderboard. Um, they've been crushing it, uh, trading crypto for a long time and decided to create their own exchange, uh, which is FTX. They have an FTT token, et cetera. Um, but they have these leverage tokens, which are like ETH bull, ETH bear. Uh, and in that scenario, you buy the token, it essentially gives you 3x exposure to that said asset. So if you buy 3x, buy $5,000 of ETH bull, it gives you $15,000 worth of, of that exposure um, and vice versa for, for bear. So it was somewhat of a, a confusing scenario and Binance added the token and didn't really give, I think, a ton of, of guidance to people. And I think a lot of individuals might've just seen, Hey, you know, this is a, this is a bull token. This is a bear token. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds cool. I'm going to buy it. Um, and so eventually Binance, I guess so many people got wrecked trading these tokens and, and they were getting negative feedback based upon it that, uh, Binance delisted these tokens. And as of now on FTX's own site, which is kind of the original place, where these tokens traded, the, the most liquidity, et cetera. Um, FTX now has an exam before you trade these leverage tokens. So they uh, they ask you about basic mechanics. There was a, a, a daily rebalancing with these tokens to kind of get them to, to, to supposed to be to, to par. They talk about the returns that it would be, uh, that you would earn as a trader. So essentially making sure that you are a knowledgeable trader and you know the product that you're trading and it kind of brings up like an interesting debate a little bit is, is this type of thing, is this actually good for the crypto industry? You know, should this almost be the norm and not every, not every product is maybe this complicated, but I do think that type of like questionnaire almost is, is helpful to, to educate some of these rookie traders per se, who are throwing money around willy nilly and have no idea what they're actually trading and end up losing a bunch of money. And then you see them in CZ's mentions on Twitter <laughs> saying, Hey, I bought ETH bull and I lost all my money, even though ETH went up. Why did that happen? Etc. Yeah. Oh man. I, I mean, I, I'm all for it, to be honest. Um, I'm all for over-educating. Um, there's a lot of young investors and people that, and want to be traders um, in crypto and, there, I do think there needs to be more education around these kinds of products. You can't just toss them onto your exchange and, and just let people have at it because this happens. So I'm all for the education. I think, um, you know, it'll only benefit people in the long run. But if you're, if, if you're trading leverage, like you got to do your research, you got to know what's going on. There's, there's no reason to get liquidated. And especially because this asset class is, it's so nascent. Um, there's not a ton of liquidity on some of these altcoins and things like that. And, and a lot of these alts you can, you can leverage trade and, and without liquidity, sometimes, you know, things happen. You see those massive wicks just, just clear out stops for days underneath, you know, the, the price. So it, it's brutal. Uh, but so you gotta be educated and I'm all for these exchanges, um, putting out content 
for these uh, young traders and investors. Yeah, especially when it when it comes to leverage trading um, and anything on margin, like you should really, really understand what you're trading. And I mean, there's there's something to be said about having some element of personal responsibility. Like that's true. I, I do I do think yes, it's good that FTX is basically quizzing these traders. But at the same point, like the opposite side of my head says, nobody is putting a gun to your head and saying, okay, you need to long this asset that you don't know what you're trading. So why should somebody else that knows what they're doing have to take that test or whatever it might be? But at the same point, I, I, I do, I, I feel like it, it is helpful. And the more education, the more educated people are, the better. Um, yeah. But sometimes you just can't fix stupid, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. The barrier of entry is already so low that maybe this will raise the bar just a tad. Yeah. Yeah. Small, small incremental improvement. Right. Over Little. <laughs> exactly. Um. But getting on to to our, our segment, uh, Pump It, Dump It. If you weren't around for last week, we have a new segment on the pod, Pump It, Dump It. Um, it's basically a hot seat, cool throne type scenario. Pump it, something that's going to go up. Dump it, something that's going down. And for me, kicking this week off on the Pump It side of the house, uh, I'm saying people spending their stimulus checks on dumb shit. Um, <laughs> you know, anybody, I guess, who's making... I think it's 75K or potentially under 100K uh, in the US uh, as an individual uh, or under 200 as a family. You're earning, you're get, you're earning. <laughs> you're receiving about $1,200 depending upon certain things from the government. People are starting to get those checks. You're seeing it on Twitter. People are you know, dancing, doing doing little jigs, et cetera. Um, pretty happy about, you know, pretty happy about receiving that. Um, and I'm not going to tell anybody what they can spend their money on, but. I do. You know, I'm seeing a lot of tweets about people spending their their stimulus checks on on crazy stuff. Um, should probably just throw that in a rainy day fund for right now. But who yeah. who am I to who am I to judge? Well, in New York and San Francisco, that's like a dinner for four. You know, so uh, there you go. It ta- after this whole quarantine's out, just take your family out for dinner, and there you go, twelve hundred bucks down the drain. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, oh man, doesn't but, go a long way in some big cities, but I'm sure in other. I mean. The vast majority of the country, or at least geographical area of the country, I'm sure it does go a long way. I can't believe it's come to this. It's it's funny, you know, Trump bucks hitting people's banks account, bank accounts, pretty wild. Yeah, uh, I, it's. I don't know. I'm still like at a loss for. You're starting to see, and we we've talked about it on on a few of the past podcast episodes, but people on the like reopen the economy train, and that that start of the that I think that line of thinking is getting louder and louder. And we're starting to see the numbers trail off a little bit as far as at least in New York for me, Mm -hmm. starting to see new cases trail off a little bit. Um, And some of the data, at least on like the coronavirus stuff looks like it's improving and maybe it's under control. Um, So you're starting to see a lot of people just kind of banging the table. There were some protests in North Carolina yesterday uh, in Raleigh uh, about reopening the economy and reopening the state um, and they were, I think a lot of people, or I don't know, a lot of people, a few people were arrested for protesting and it's just a whole, whole big, crazy, I don't even really want to get into all yeah. of that much because <laughs> it's such a, it's such a hot button topic, but the longer this stuff goes on, uh, you know, even the people that are super excited about the $1,200, if you lose your job, $1,200 isn't going very far. So, no. um, you know, if you're out of work for, for three months, even if you're making minimum minimum wage, you're making a lot. You're bringing in a lot more than twelve hundred dollars. 
So we'll, we'll see how this stuff shakes out. Um, you know, the longer it goes, I think the louder those reopen the, you know, reopen the economy, get the businesses moving that, that stuff's going to go louder and louder. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely. Um, uh, my pump it for the week. Um, what is pumping is, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. They came out, uh, I think it was yesterday announced they're aiming to raise another, another second crypto fund. Um, aiming to, to put about 450 million, um, into that fund, which is, which is great. If you're not familiar, Andreessen Horowitz, a 16 Z, um, you know, infamous VC and just one of the first movers in crypto as well. Um, they, they invested in, in Coinbase early on, which I mean, is, is kind of a household name of course, and now valued at about 8 billion. So they definitely were one of the first movers there. And I thought it was interesting, you know, a lot of with the the turmoil in the markets, not not only crypto, but traditional markets, people are being a little bit more careful with their investing spending. So where a lot of other VCs are hesitating on crypto, um, A16Z is not. So I think that's interesting. They've always been kind of ahead of the curve or the tip of the spear when it comes to hot new tech and new industries, um, computer software, SaaS especially. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that performs. Um, I know they have their, their first form or their, um, previous, um, fund is I think more of like a 10 year fund. So they're not going to really going to touch that for 10 years. I think that's mm -hmm. what, that was the idea there. So we'll see how it performs. I mean, I like that they're, they're willing to get out there and invest, um, because there's still a lot of great companies out there, a lot of great products. And amidst all the the uncertainty, they're they're pumping some money into the market. Yeah, and they also have uh, like it's it's now remote, but uh, crypto startup school they launched um, pretty recently. So they started doing that, which is basically like an incubator, kind of like a Y Combinator type type of situation for specifically for for crypto startups, which is cool. Um, I think you know a few people have tried to. Uh, do something similar, but I think that, you know, A16Z is one of those companies or one of those VC firms that has the resources, that has the talent, that has the money uh, to really make mm -hmm. shit happen for companies. So, you know, if you have a kind of a no-name VC firm saying, hey, you know, we're going to have a startup school for crypto, like that's cool, but is it going to really go anywhere? Probably not. You have A16Z come out and say, hey, we got a $400 million fund. And by the way, you know, we can teach you how to Know, build a, a company in this space. Um, I think that's really interesting. And, and to that point too, it's like, not only are they, and, and they get some flack too, I think a little bit, just as far as their involvement goes, I think they're pretty involved in like the maker ecosystem and a few other eco, like, you know, kind of like blockchain uh, ecosystems in general, but they are like a relatively speaking, like pretty crypto native investors. Like they know, uh, you know, they're not just throwing money at, like let's say the Coinbase's of the world now, at least, um, you know, they've obviously invested early stage in those companies, but they're also kind of investing at the blockchain layer. Um, so in like some layer one, layer two type projects, they're investing in kind of a, a variety of organizations throughout the ecosystem, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, agreed. I think they've always been one of the more um, top tier, you know, VC firms. So always good to keep an eye on. I love when stuff like this comes out in the midst of just market, yeah. uh, turmoil, you know, and okay. price drops, like this is good news and keep your eye out for these kinds of things. It's kind of good news. I mean, this stuff is what makes me bullish on just the industry 
uh, at large and, you know, for the next mm -hmm. 10 years uh, and beyond, you know, this is the kind of stuff that gets me all jacked up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so flip flip side, what are you, what are you dumping right now? Um, I am dumping small businesses. I mean, they are dumping and I feel so bad. We are, I feel we terrible. Are a small business that prove talent. <laughs> That's a good point. We are pumping. We are not dumping. Um, but just small businesses across the, the country. I mean, it's so tough out there. Mom and pop shops, um, people that rely on, um, you know, foot traffic. I mean, these places are just suffering little restaurants, you know, on the corner, coffee shops, you name it. So these small businesses, a lot of them haven't received their relief funds. As a matter of fact, I think it was um, I think it was Pomp that that tweeted out an article about uh, Harvard just netting a crispy nine million in aid um, from the government today. Uh, and not to mention, this is this is Harvard, the same Harvard that has a thirty eight billion um, dollar uh, dollars in their endowment, and then. You know that that's the largest in the world. So I mean, they they have cash, like they've got money, and here they are getting another nine million from the government for who knows what. I mean, yeah. but I'm thinking of the mom and pop shops. I'm thinking of the coffee shop on the corner. Like, where's their help? Where's their relief? A lot of them haven't gotten it yet. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I've been like kind of checking out the Reddit small business uh, sub. If you're interested, if you're a small business owner, that's actually been a pretty interesting place recently. Uh, especially if you apply to the payroll protection program, which is basically uh, like a loan. It's it's actually the way it's set up, if it's efficiently delivered, which it really has not been efficiently delivered. But the way it's set up is actually pretty, pretty solid for uh, small businesses where basically you get a loan uh, equivalent to about two and a half months payroll and, and some other general expenses. And if you use that loan for two months, uh, for employee payroll to maintain your staff and not lay anybody off, um, then uh, either a portion or all of that loan is forgiven. And if not, it's a two-year loan at 1% interest. Um, so it's really good, but good. there's been a lot of uh, inefficiencies as far as the administration and the applications of those loans. Uh, so that's you know through everything from you know, from JP Morgan Chase to Bank of America to to PayPal to um, like the cabbages of the world and the funderas of the world and like that type of thing. So um, a lot of business owners in like the our small business, it's basically just if you check it out, it is a subreddit just full of people talking about their applications because a lot of small businesses are really in a rough place, you know, not having enough to, you know, to make payroll or to coming really close to making ends meet and and this type of funds would be critical to help them kind of stay the course of the payroll. So hopefully that stuff goes through, but yeah, it's uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a wild time and, and uh, it, it's tough because you even have these like larger businesses that there was an article I posted on Twitter earlier today about wall street journal or from the wall street journal that Ruth's Chris, which is a steakhouse. I'm sure a lot of people in the U S know like a steakhouse chain um, and got like 9 million bucks in uh, I, I don't remember the number off the top. I thought it was 9 million bucks. Um, for the pay payroll protection program and they got it in mm -hmm. four days. So you now it's, it's supposed to be for small businesses. Um, Bruce Chris, I believe is, is part of a publicly traded company. Um, and you know, there's, there's definitely a clear prioritization if you have you know, a solid relationship with your bank and if you have a lot of money. Right. Um, so you know, not so much of a prioritization when you're a, a two person recruiting firm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> working out of your apartment, et cetera. So yeah, yeah it's, uh, it, it's, it's really, really tough times for all. Yeah. And on a positive that. note, um, you know, I, I think just 
out here in San Francisco, um, there has been definitely a rallying with the community here in SF just around the small businesses as far as ordering out people, uh, helping out and supporting their community as best they can. Uh, I think Uber Eats, for example, you know, all the fees, a lot of the fees they get go directly to the uh, the restaurant that you order from just to help them out additional, you know, revenue stream, however small it be, it may be at first, you know, you add that up over time, it really helps them out. So um, people are really stepping up uh, and helping out their local community. So that's definitely a positive. It's just, uh, it's tough to see that prioritization kind of uh, misstep in, in some of these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on my end right now, kind of going off that, um, one of the things I'm, I'm dumping right now, or I'm not really dumping, but people are dumping, so I'm dumping, <laughs> is, is cities. And you're starting to see <laughs> a, a, a growing, growing conversation on Twitter and elsewhere about uh, cities suck. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in, I'm in New York, Colton's in San Francisco. I'm stuck in New York. I'm stuck in San Francisco. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going and buying a massive you know, plot of land in Montana or uh, <laughs> North Dakota or somewhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of here and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to live freely now that I can work remotely. And uh, it, it, to me, it's a little bit funny just because like, especially a lot of these people that are like, have only lived in cities and not, you know, they, they have to stay in their apartment for a month. Now they're like, I'm moving to North Dakota. It's like, <laughs> Move it wouldn't to North survive. Dakota, <laughs> see how you like it. And then when you're back in whatever city you're from in five minutes, like yeah. it's it just, just relax, take a chill pill. But I do, you know, overall, I don't think that there's, there's people that are talking about this mass exodus from cities. And I, I just, if you, you know, you want to move out of the city, fine. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll, you'll lower my rent. That's no, that's absolutely ridiculous. My rent will never be lower, but maybe it'll stay the same year over year. So I, I wouldn't hate that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, over time, maybe you know, long enough over long enough time, maybe some more people will start to reevaluate their situations. You know, um, I mean, in San Francisco, paying you know a couple thousand dollars for a two bedroom apartment isn't great. A couple, you know, a couple thousand. I mean, yeah, a couple. Half, half yeah, right. <laughs> so you know, I think people at least will start to explore some alternatives. I'm still waiting for you know, you know, Boulder, Colorado to get cheap. You know, maybe someday, maybe someday I've got that way out there, you know, <laughs> it's, it's too nice there, you know, yeah. but, um, if the market crashes, I'll be keeping my eye on places like Boulder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll watch and, and see, but there's, there's some, some interesting discussions around like what this time working remotely will do for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And yes, I do think it will increase the amount of remote work that's done in general, do I think the entire economy is now just going to switch to remote forever? No, there's still like, I listen to different podcasts of different business leaders and things like that. And there's still a lot of, I would say older school people that are like, you know what? Like there is no replication for being in the office, especially CEOs is funny. Like I was listening to a podcast with a guy who's a CEO um, of a, of another recruiting company. Um, it's kind of like in, in our industry. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, I, uh, this is, everybody's always worked in our office. I've always worked in our office. This is really freaking me out. Like, I don't like this at all. I make everybody message me at seven 30 in the morning when they get to their <laughs> desk, I make them let me know when they're taking lunch and they're leaving lunch. And any, like, I'm just like, that is not how you do remote work, buddy. But you know what? It's your business. So you do you. Yeah, um, but- I bet that guy is a big handshake guy. 
I bet he's a big handshake guy. <laughs> he's going to be bummed out when people stop giving out handshakes after yeah. this is all over. <laughs> Elbows only for him in the future. Right. Uh, <laughs> but so finishing off with the, the last segment that we have, and this is, uh, so this is job interview tips. And the past few weeks we've, we've given a few different job interview tips. Um, but this week we, we, I posted a tweet uh, and asked people to, to respond with different questions that they had about uh, finding a job in the crypto industry. And, and again, for, you know, anybody who doesn't know, um, Colton and I both, um, run proof of talent, which is a recruiting firm that works with companies, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency world. Um, Colton primarily is on, on the recruiting end. I do a lot of work on the recruiting end with a, a company side. Um, but we work with like 15 plus different companies in, in the industry, primarily in the U S and we got some good questions. So I wanted to answer those. So if you're interested in that, uh, interested in a career in the world, you know, crypto world, I always have a link in the description. Uh, for proof of talent. But uh, you know, the first question we got was from uh, somebody named Patrick. So shout out to Patrick. Uh, and his question, I think, is is applicable to a lot of people. But he said, I'm not an engineer or a developer. What other positions or skill sets are valued and needed in the crypto industry? So maybe Colton will kick that off with you. Yeah, yeah. Great question, Patrick. It does, I think, resonate with a lot of people out there trying to um, penetrate the industry. Some way, uh, some way, shape or form. Um, I would say, uh, aside from the more technical engineer, uh, product management type roles, uh, a lot of the roles that we see out there are, um, operational, they're, they're, they're sales and business development, a lot of partnerships, marketing, legal, um, customer service, even, I think one, one thing that you can kind of point to and look for when you're out there job searching, um, on your own is, the larger the company, the more diverse the roles are going to be. Yep. Um, these small startups, especially in crypto, are still very technically focused. They're building a lot of their products out. So they need those engineers. They need those product managers and those developers. So uh, the smaller the company, the, the less likely it is that they're going to have uh, roles outside of the technical realm. So if you're looking for... Um, those kinds of roles, like I mentioned, the sales, the marketing, the legal, the customer service, the ops, target those bigger companies. They're more built out, they're more stable, and they've got more opportunity. Yeah, but I would definitely agree with that. I think there's there's essentially a a trend, especially in the industry, um, the companies that are like the seed stage companies. Most companies are venture backed, but some companies that are like the seed stage or maybe even the Series A, um, but primarily seed stage, early stage companies, they're still building product. Um, and when you're building product or you haven't kind of completed the, the final vision or at least the final initial vision of, of your product, uh, there's not a whole lot to do maybe outside of that. And some companies do hire for you know, maybe marketing to build product awareness, et cetera. But if the product's not done, do you necessarily need a, you know, sales? Um, do you need somebody to handle operations if you haven't completed the product? So for these early stage companies, the bulk of their hires are going to be more on the engineering side of the house or on the technical side of the house to help bring that product to life. And then once they actually have a, a completed product, something that can be utilized by customers, whether that's consumers or institutions or whatever it might be, then that's when you see they, they start to add those, those other kind of avenues of the business, uh, you know, more marketing people, more salespeople, maybe more legal hires, more customer service hires because they actually have customers, uh, that type of thing. So I, I think you definitely mm -hmm. hit the nail on the head there. Um, yeah, uh, the, I'll go jump on to the next question here if, if that's if that's cool. Yeah, I course. think uh, this one's from Ben 
Shout out to Ben. Thanks for uh, submitting the question. Um, he asked for someone who doesn't have an obviously transferable skill, like a developer. Um, what's the best way to make oneself attractive to companies hiring in the space? Um, is it to develop specific skills or apply one's existing skill set in a specific way? For example, if I'm good at writing, should I start um, writing about my personal perspective on the industry? Great question, Ben. Um, Rob, why don't you uh, take a stab at this one? Yeah, I, I so I like how Ben mentioned applying one's existing skill set in specific ways. I do think that that is a really good approach to take. Uh, when you're looking at being able to apply your existing skill set in a specific way, I think what you can think about is there are people that have been lawyers and or they've even just been in law school and there would be an SEC ruling about a, a token or there would be some type of new lawsuit that came out and maybe they weren't even practicing lawyers yet, but they would go online and they would you know, do you know, read the briefing and they would do a 10 tweet storm about what happened. And they mm -hmm. would build up a reputation doing that because they had some knowledge. They applied that knowledge to the industry and they were able to, to build a following and build the relationships. And maybe they didn't even end up practicing law after they graduated. They just went into kind of another, they went into biz dev or operations or something else than the crypto because they were able to build up so many connections. I think doing that where you have an existing skill set, um, you can try to transfer that, basically take what you know um, put your own spin on it in the crypto industry. And I think that will be a very successful approach. Yeah. Nailed it. I agree hundred percent leverage things like Twitter, things like medium, um, LinkedIn post. Don't be afraid to post to write stuff. You know, just publish your thoughts. Um, half of the CEOs, executive teams, and these companies are on Twitter actively all the time. So if your stuff gets retweeted and it gets likes, I mean, the more content that you pump out, the better your chances are of it of just being seen and it uh, circulating throughout the you know the crypto Twitter sphere. Um, so definitely a, a good way to do it there, for sure. And and the last question we have is is from Vince and he talks about what is the the best transition or what's the best way to transition from an administrative job or we can even say any job, but from an administrative job to a junior blockchain developer position. And and for me. Um, I think you have some specific thoughts around this too. Uh, but for me, I think that the, the big thing is building, uh, a technical foundation when you, when you look at, it's essentially, it's essentially building a house, you know, you're not going to go in, you could think of the blockchain specific development. If you are starting from a completely unrelated industry and you have no experience in software engineering, you think about, you know, blockchain development as the roof, like you're not just going to put a roof on a. Uh, you know, on a, on a plot of land with no foundation, um, you know, know anything outside of that. So you really need to start a strong foundation. Uh, and whether that is self-teaching yourself, uh, you know, self-teaching different languages to yourself, uh, whether that's taking some type of, of traditional boot camp, uh, a Lambda school, you know, any you know, code academy, anything like that. And then you move on to the blockchain specific uh, information in particular. Exactly. Yeah, you know, just uh, not much to add there other than just, you know, once you get that strong foundation, um, or even while you're doing that, keep in touch with what's going on in crypto. Understand what's being built, um, whether it's you know in the DeFi community and smart contracts. Um, understand what's going on out there, what's being built. Make sure to stay plugged in so that you're up to speed as you kind of build out your own tool set, um, and then you can you can dive right in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
and it's it's never i don't think it's it's an easy transition but it's something that a lot of people have found to be worthwhile and and you can certainly like colton said you can keep an eye you can try to learn as much on the blockchain specific stuff while you're while you're teaching yourself those core concepts but i do think having a technical foundation is ultimately going to make your life a lot easier when you are trying to learn that blockchain knowledge rather than just saying okay like i'm starting from scratch i'm in an admin job right now i have no development knowledge at all okay i'm gonna go learn solidity like you should probably learn some whether it's javascript or python or whatever it might be try and learn some of that first before you know hopping into something like you know solidity or trying to work on the bitcoin core protocol or anything like that yeah definitely definitely a good place to start there yeah. And so that, you know, pretty much covers today's podcast. Um, you know, hopefully you guys enjoyed the job interview tips on, on that front. Um, and then yeah, let, let us know your thought on the Bitcoin having, uh, is it something you're really excited about? Do you put a lot of faith in the stock to flow model or are you more a little bit cautious on that? And then also let us know your thoughts on, on exchanges too, and whether or not you really feel like they have a responsibility to educate traders or, Hey, that's all on you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interested to hear your thoughts, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in this week. If you need to find us anywhere, so I have all the info in the uh, podcast description, the YouTube description. If you need any help on jobsprovetalent.co, Twitter handles, all that stuff. Until next time, guys. See you. Peace. See you guys.